Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All right, we're going to talk about King Solomon's Temple. This is the second part of a two-part series. The first part was called The Messiah. And I highly suggest that you need to see the first part, the first video called The Messiah in order to understand the flow into the subject we're now going to talk about, which is King Solomon's Temple. Uh, there's a very famous story about King Solomon, the wise King Solomon in ancient Israel and his great temple. But the problem we're going to find out to start with is that the Temple Institute in Jerusalem has spent approximately $27 million on preparations for rebuilding of the ancient Jewish temple called Solomon's Temple. And of course, all over the world, people are watching and keenly anticipating as Christians and Jews are watching around the world that great and glorious Solomon's Temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, <clears throat> which will inaugurate some great and glorious time for the human race. Well, the only problem is, upon closer examination of the history of the region, you'll find that the first thing you need to know about the ancient temple of King Solomon is that there was no ancient king named Solomon, and he didn't have any temple either. Two of the best archaeologists, and I repeat, two of the best archaeologists, top-of-the-line archaeologists of Israel, have written a book called The Bible Unearthed, Archaeology's New Vision of Ancient Israel and the Origins of Its Sacred Texts. And in this book, and it's not the only one, this is one of many, but it's just one of the better ones, the authors explain how the ancient stories of ancient Israel never existed. There was no ancient Israel <clears throat> there was no King Solomon. Uh, I will go on to say there was no Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. These are all metaphors, symbolic terms. These ancient people we'll read about in the Old Testament and ancient Israel uh, actually never existed. And therefore there was no ancient Israel, which means there was no ancient King Solomon. And therefore there was no ancient King Solomon's temple. So whatever they're spending money on, it's the first time anything has ever been done because there was no ancient King Solomon or a temple. So you go to Google, if you wish, and type in King Solomon myth, and you'll see there's over a million two hundred thousand 
results of <clears throat> articles about King Solomon mythology. All the ancient uh, reference works talk about the mythology of ancient King Solomon that who never lived. There was no temple and there was no King Solomon. In archaeology, some of the articles uh, says the empire of David and Solomon is not mentioned in any ancient Near Eastern source. Monumental reliefs and statues, palaces, ivories, jewelry, and all the normal signs of a sophistication required to run an empire are lacking. Donald Redford, author and leading authority on the era, writes in frustration about the absence of everything to verify the biblical stories. We have many different authors talking about the absence of any uh, legitimate uh, documents showing that there was an ancient Israel or an ancient uh, kings, Solomon, David, etc. These are all stories, but they're not backed up by actual history. Nothing can be unequivocally attributed to Solomon, nor is there any trace of the great culture that he developed. Hazar, Megiddo, Gezar have been widely excavated, and palaces, temples, and fortifications have been found, but no mention of Solomon. People believe such myths, and they succeed in their purpose because they are attractive stories and convincing. If they were not, they, wouldn't, they would be useless. The popularity of myths cannot be any evidence of their truth. So just because a million people or millions of people believe something doesn't mean it's true. So we see that the absence of any historical confirmation of a Solomon simply does not deter biblical scholars. And this is interesting. I'll say it again. The absence of any historical confirmation of a Solomon or his temple simply does not deter biblical scholars. God has told them that there was a Solomon, so what scholarship can contradict it? Basically what this is saying is, look, it, it doesn't matter if he existed or not. <clears throat> the Bible says so, and that's the way it is. Even if it didn't exist, we'll accept it as if it did exist. The evidence of the first temple is always fate. Uh, we go on to read about how, uh, what evidence is there for the Temple of Solomon, those indoctrinated into biblical mythology as history might be surprised to know that the only evidence is in the Bible. There are no other documentary records or archaeological evidences for it, nor are there any documentary records of a King Solomon or any archaeological sites that can be attributed to a King Solomon, though some were once were. Only biblicists stick to the former erroneous associations of certain buildings and gates with King Solomon. There was no unequivocal archaeological evidence of a King Solomon at all, period. So we got all kinds of quotes about, uh, from reference works from all over the world, the antiquities, you know, this is interesting too about antiquities. The antiquities scam exposed the gullibility of believers. Israel Finkelstein, one of the top archaeologists in Israel, a noted Israeli archaeologist, observed that inscribed objects are extremely rare and 
proper archaeological digs in Palestine, and yet the antiquities market keeps producing them by the carloads. So for getting actual, in fact, legitimate uh, archaeological finds is extremely rare at best. But the, uh, but the market for these archaeological discoveries is just over, it's just a carloads of this stuff is being found, so we can tell you that it's the gullibility of people believing in such things that keeps this market going. Never mind then the roots are illusionary, but they are and evidence for them are false. Religious beliefs does not depend on evidence at all. So for pious Jews and Christians, false evidence is as good as any. Uh, actually, what it's saying is it doesn't matter what the, uh, what the historical evidence, as long as you are a holy and righteous Christian who love the Lord Jesus, uh, you, you, know, you will believe whatever it is you want to believe. But the fact of the matter is there was no ancient Israel, there was no King Solomon or any temple. Again, one of the best places I have found, and there are many places on the web that has a lot of good information on the background of King Solomon myth. But there's one in particular you can find on Google called askwhy.com.uk. Check out that whole site. There's a lot of information on their documentary materials you'll want to know about. Solomon did not exist. Here's another from Finkelstein and Silverman's book. The archaeological evidence in Jerusalem for the famous building projects of Solomon is non-existent. 19th and 20th century excavations of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem failed to identify even a trace of Solomon's fabled temple or, pal or palace complex. And so we go on. <clears throat> we are the, the you know we have so many different reference works in the library where you can find that the evidence for the empire empire of Solomon is deceptively abundant. It is abundant in Jewish scriptures and nowhere else, period. Yet biblical archaeologists who would be struck off to register if they were doctors have doctored so much archaeological evidence that religious pundits today think Solomon is a well-established historical figure. So if these people who are telling us that Solomon's temple was uh, right, was uh, was there, was an actual historical place, if they were doctors, they would have been kicked out of the profession a long time ago. But because they're dealing with religion, I mean, you can say anything. Anything is viable now. So we see, that, again, no reference or evidence that any Solomon ever lived. Uh, go, as a matter of fact, if you want to go on Google or any other search engine, or go to a library, and look up the word Saul Om On, because that's where the word Solomon comes from. Saul, Om, and On. Saul is the ancient Roman god personification of the sun, the Greek Helios. <clears throat> so Saul is Latin for the sun. Om, of course, is the Hindu meditation symbol for the principle of life. And so Om is the holy meditation symbol in Hinduism. It is believed to be immortal, inexhaustible, and is interpreted as a symbolic expression of the creative spirit. And incidentally, the city of Heliopolis, which is a Greek word, there's a city in Egypt called Heliopolis, but that is not what the Egyptians call that city. The Egyptians call that city On, O-N. So therefore, if you take Saul, which is the Latin word for the sun god, Om for the Hindu 
symbol for the divine presence and life, and on is the city of the sun. It all goes back to sun worship, because the sun is the basis for all life. So now we have Saul, Om, and On, the sun god, the eye of God. And uh, other reference works, you will begin to see, when you break down Solomon to Saul, Om, On, you will begin to see it is quoted throughout all the reference works, everything, all kinds of encyclopedias, I'll keep telling you that it was always Saul, Om, On, was the name of the sun in three esoteric languages. So just do some research on this concept of King Saul, Om, On, and you will see everywhere you look, you will find that it's broken down that way in reference books, encyclopedias, so there is something to this idea that Saul Om On gives us the word Solomon, which actually is a word for the sun or the sun god or the temple of the sun. So we can continue showing you reference works on Solomon. Even the Masons know and admit that the name Solomon is three names of the sun in three different languages. Solomon is Saul Om On, as we said. And the whole story of Solomon in the Bible is just an allegory of the sun and the life of man. Of course, without the sun, you'd be dead. So the sun is our giver of life. Again, the sun is Saul in Hindu Om. And in Egypt, the city of the sun was called On. Saul Om On. Even the, uh, the Masonic orders have temples of Saul Om On. So, uh... We could go on with, i got maybe 40 or 50 different reference works that talk about this name, Solomon. So it's not something that was written by one person. No, this is in many different places in the world. You can read about the, the bringing together of the three names of the sun. Here in the History of Freemasonry on page 918, we see <clears throat> that uh, to show that the Solomon legend as it has been formulated in the third degree of our modern Freemasonry, though accepted in lodge ritual, is a mere myth, supposition without historical authority to sustain it. So that comes from the history of Freemasonry, a Masonic uh, reference work, uh, telling you that it's merely a myth or a supposition without historical authority to sustain it. It's a symbolic term. Do some background research on King Solomon myth. As I said, we have a lot of material on the King Solomon myth. And uh, there's some new books coming out, Solomon's Temple and the myth and history of the temple. So let's look at the origins of the name Solomon again. Saul is Om. Saul is the Latin word for the sun god, as we've said. There's Saul. There's the uh, ancient Roman god Saul. We see it in uh, pictured everywhere. It's always the sun, Saul. And therefore, the king in the heavens is Saul. Then Om, as we said, meditation symbol. The Om is representing the sun. So we have Saul, and now we have Om. Om is the sun or the power of the energy of the sun to bring life into our world. So it's an appropriate symbol. Om, meaning uh, the, the actual, as it says, the mystical symbol of Hinduism. So Om uh, represents the power 
of creation, which is, of course, all energy comes from the sun, Om. Now, take Heliopolis, as I said. Heliopolis was an ancient city in Egypt. Uh, Heliopolis, uh, here we have a map of the area of ancient Heliopolis, or the city of On. See, the Greeks called the city On Heliopolis. Helios meaning the, the sun, and Opolis is a city, city of the sun. But the Egyptians called it On. Biblical name in Heliopolis, On. This is from a biblical uh, a biblical reference work, <clears throat> looking at the capital of Lower Egypt, the city of On. Egyptian elements in the Joseph narrative. This is the city of On, city of pillars. On, better known by the later Greek name Heliopolis, was a city of sun worship that was famous for its obelisk. So we see that uh, this is over and over again, keeps talking about the city of On. So... Now you know where we get Saul, Om, On. We need to get and understand there was no King Solomon. There was no Solomon's temple. There was no ancient Israel. There was no Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. The entire superstructure of the Old Testament is a metaphor, a symbolic metaphor story. And this is why the Bible is called the greatest story ever told. It's just a story. It's a symbolic story of the God who gives life to the earth. And therefore, the God who gives life is the sun, the sun God. Now, now that we have established where the name Solomon, Saul Oman, comes from, it's very repetitive, could be very boring, but you need to understand where this name comes from. Now, let's see what the symbolic temple of Solomon actually represents. If you go back into history, into the ancient world, you will see that many and almost all temples were based on sex, the sex organs of the male or the female. Here in the modern day is a, is a temple that was being built, and it's called the Temple of Sexual Instruction. You can see the obvious sexual symbolism. Well, that's, it's replete throughout history. All the temples and churches and all the cathedrals were all based on sex worship because after all only God can create life. Well that's what the man and woman do is create life. Here is a typical uh, overview of an architecture of a temple. You'll see the two testes and then the phallic symbol. You'll see it again. Here's the temple of Herod. On the bottom you'll see the temple of Solomon and the Solomon's Temple, obviously, is the phallic symbol within the female. It always has to do with sex. Because in the ancient world, that's where the action was. And the creation of human life and the creation of life was always uh, respected and homaged in the temples. So the Temple of Sol-Oman, as you'll see now, the two testes, Jacob and Boaz, uh, uh, connected to the male phallic, the, uh, the side chambers representing the female, and the head of the penis is called the most holy. So this is what it all means. This is where it comes from. Jacob and Boaz, as I said, represent the two uh, phallic symbols, the male, the male phallic within the female. This is how 
the ancient world pictured all the temples. You will, if, if you'll do some research on sexual temples of the ancient world, you will find that virtually every temple in the entire history of the world has had to do with sex worship, with the vagina, with the penis, with the, with the sun, because the sun gives energy to man to procreate. And so the Old Temple, the Old Testament in the Bible is filled with sexual symbolism. One example is the story of Jacob and his pillar of God found in the book of Genesis. So if you go to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, Genesis 35, 9 through 15, and read the story of Jacob's pillar. After Jacob dreamed that Yahweh stood on a ladder that was reaching into heaven and promised him great fertility, he awakened out of his sleep and took the stone that he had put for his pillow because the story says in Genesis 28 that Jacob fell asleep on a stone and then had this dream where Yahweh uh, showed him a ladder reaching into heaven and promised him great fertility. And then it says out of his sleep he took the stone that he was sleeping on and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. On, on another occasion, we read that God appeared to Jacob and promised the nations would come out of his loins. In other words, he would be very sexually active, that nations would come out of his loins. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked, God talked with him, even a pillar of stone, and poured a drink offering thereupon, and he poured oil thereupon. That's from the Old Testament. So what we're saying is that this pillar of stone, Jacob, said that God uh, gave him a vision. And, uh, and so in order to honor this stone that, jo that Jehovah had given uh, as a symbol, he poured oil upon this stone. Well, we know that in the ancient world, the stone worship was phallic worship, where they would pour uh, oil on the stone. There can be little doubt that setting up of a stone, as Jacob did on these occasions, had phallic significance from the following reasons. This is from a biblical reference work. The shape of the stone, to be set up as a pillar, the stone had to be oblong. It had to be round in shape, and it could be not, and it could not be set up. Being stone, its hardness was also fitting for the intended symbolism, hard as a rock. Pouring oil on top of it, if the upright stone symbolized the erect penis, oil on top of it would symbolize the male ejaculation by which life is produced. Remember, only God can produce life. That's what the male and female do. Therefore, the actual context is Jacob's actions were unmistakably tied with the idea of fertility and offspring. The immediate context says he was to be fruitful and multiply, that abundant seed would come out of his loins. So when you see in the ancient reference works, and you will see that if you go to the library or just go on the web because of that modern day invention of our computers, all kinds of great reference works are now easily obtainable on the web, you will begin to see that all the ancient temples of the world were dedicated to sex, to the erect penis, to sexual reproduction, to the sun that gives energy to the earth and to man so that they can reproduce. 
and as one of authority, one authority named Clark has written that setting up of consecrated stones and pouring oil on them as Jacob did was very common in different ages and places. Why would you pour oil on the stone which is an erect uh, phallic stone? Because it was always uh, understood that the male needed to lubricate Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <clears throat> His phallic, he lubricated the penis before sex. That was what we get. That's where we get the word anointing from. So when you hear Christians or religious people talking about a religious anointing, just know that that's where the word anointing comes from. Anointing is pouring oil on the head of the penis before sex. So when you hear preachers or reverends or clergy talking about how they have been anointed with holy with holy oil, just understand, yes, they have been anointed in the head. That's where the penis is anointed, is in the head of the penis. So when you talk about pillars, pillow worship, this is a pillar. At the top right, you will see a pillar. Pillars have been used in architecture, but pillars were phallic emblems of many gods and heroes. So when you see a pillars, just understand that they represented the male phallic. We're called pillars. So if you if you hear somebody is referred to as a pillar of the community, you'll know what he is. The biblical God himself, in this reference works, talk about religion, it says the biblical God himself was a pillar resident in his earlier days when he lived in the stone of sort called Bethel, the dwelling place of a deity. The stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. As, uh, that's in Genesis 28:22. So we know that the biblical Old Testament God himself used to dwell in a pillar. He was a resident in the early days and when he lived in the stone, in the penis stone, it was called Bethel. So uh, for Jehovah's Witnesses who are going to Bethel and uh, for others who think that this is such a holy name, Bethel and Bethel, just understand that Bethel is house of God. And Bethel was a stone, a phallic stone. It was a pillar, a male phallic stone called Bethel, which was a dwelling place of Jehovah. The stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. So the house of God is a male erection. And here in Jacob, here in, uh, in the Old Testament talking about uh, Jacob, it says Jacob awoke. This is, the, this is where we get the story about Jacob and his pillar. 
and says, And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. This is none other than the house of God. And Jacob rose up early in the morning, took the stone that he had put for a pillow, and set it up for a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. And this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. So what we're talking about, Bethel, God's house, if you're a Jehovah's Witness and you're going to Bethel, just know that God's house is Bethel, Beth being house and El is God. The house of God is a male erection that's lubricated. Get it? It is obvious that Jacob considered his actions, even though sexually symbolic, to be honorable and proper. He was simply following the established custom of the time. Sir George Birdwood, 1910, told the Royal Society of Arts, quote, When Jacob took the stone on which he slept and set it up on end for a pillar and poured oil on top of it and called it Bethel, the house of God, he performed a distinct act of phallic worship, such as may be witnessed every day at every turn in India. So when you see and hear people talking about their minister or clergy or their priest was anointed, just understand anointing came from the concept of pouring oil on the male phallic before sex. Here in India, you will see the symbol of the male phallic, and he's an, and this Christian priest, which you will see, the, the cross of Christ, is a Christian priest in India, and he's anointing the holy phallic, the male phallic organ. Phallic worship around the world is replete everywhere, but people, generally speaking, are not told these things. They don't know where all of this comes from. They read it in the Bible, they read it in a holy book, and it sounds so holy unless you do some homework and find out what it really means. The word used, and this is very interesting too, in a reference work we're reading about, the word used for any oily substance in the Old Testament. If you go to Strong's Bible Concordance and look up, look up the word in, in Strong's Bible Concordance, you will see that the word used for any oily substance in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word, shemen, which is uh, gives us our word, semen. But as Hennessy says, it is very suggestive of the old Hebraic writings when we find that the oil of anointing for phallic pillars, priests and kings, is called shemen or semen, the word used by the Romans. So again, the oil uh, anointing the phallic symbol was called in Hebrew, oil is called shemen. That's in the Bible concordance. So you better start looking at this whole <clears throat> idea of being anointed because it's sexual symbolism. Then too, we know that the use of the phallic shaped pillars in front of the temple was a common archeological form of the time. You will see a temple pillar. <clears throat> now, here is a temple pillar, supposedly, in front of King Solomon's temple. You will see on the left, the hollowed bronze pillar of the north was called Boaz, and the one from the south was called Jackin, <clears throat> which is incredible. Jackin and Boaz, 
These were two phallic pillars. Uh, these were likewise two phallic pillars. They formed a part of the phallic worship of which we are finding more and more traces in the ancient world. Uh, and talking about the ancient phallic temples within the porch, the front of the temple were two enormous phallites, or male erections. Hastings Dictionary of the Bible says the origins of Solomon's temple and Solomon's pillar must be sought in the Syrian and Phoenicians who commonly erected such pillars in front of their temples. The other pillar, Jachin, <clears throat> was also quite fittingly named. Rabbi, Rabbi Moresh pointing out that the pillars, this is a rabbi pointing out that the pillars were two giant stylized phalli, making this point about the two names. Their very names, though later interpreted ecclesiastically, <clears throat> were sexually suggestive. Jackin, the pillar on the left, stood for he will erect, while Boaz, the pillar on the right, means in him is strength. So Jackin and, and Boaz is he will erect, or he is erect, and pillar and strength. So uh, this is from a rabbi. <clears throat> So the Solomon's pillars were regarded as fertility symbols as implied by the names they were given. Again, we go back to the idea that the Egyptian idea or the Egyptian convention of twin phallic pillars at the temple gate were copied by the temple at Jerusalem where the right pillar was named Jachin, God makes him firm, and the left pillar was named Boaz, eagerness and strength. Got to look at this stuff. Twin phallic pillars. Ancient uh, temples in Egypt, along with ancient temples around the world, always featured enormous male phallic pillars. The concept of two pillars is very, very interesting uh, concept. This is where we get the World Trade Center and all the different uh, double phallic symbols around the world, as you will see. Here in the ancient sexual symbolism in our Bible reference work, <clears throat> talks about the ancient sexual symbol in, in uh, Egypt. And you will see on both sides of the two phallic symbols, two phallic pillars. Two phallic pillars. Here is, a, here is a, a, an artist's interpretation of King Solomon's temple, and you will see the two phallic pillars with the uh, pomegranates. We'll get into that in just a few moments, with the pomegranate. Here are the Hebrew and the Hebrew reference work on Solomon's temple. You will see the two pillars at the door, the gate. You will see the two pillars uh, on each side of the entrance to Solomon's temple. See the two pillars. The two pillars, the Egyptian idea or convention of twin phallic pillars at the temple gate was copied by the temple at Jerusalem, where the right pillar, as we said, was named Jachin. Makes God makes him firm. And left pillar was named Boaz, eagerness and strength. This stuff is in, in your face, and most people have no idea in the world what these symbols mean. It sounds so holy and so righteous, reading in the Old Testament about Jachin and Boaz but never realizing they were phallic symbols. Now, if you go to the Jewish Encyclopedia, this is not me, I didn't write the Jewish Encyclopedia, I'm just 
conf uh, con uh, I'm just reading and studying the symbols. So I didn't write the Jewish Encyclopedia. But if you go to the Encyclopedia Judica, you will read all of these were phallic emblems dealing with the Temple of Solomon. Here's a Jewish Encyclopedia under the heading of Temple of Solomon. It says the two pillars, Jachin and Boaz, if you haven't figured it out now, even the Jewish Encyclopedia is telling you, had their parallels not only at Tyre, but at Beblos. Uh, it goes on to say, in Egypt, the obelisks expressed the same idea. All these were phallic emblems, being survivals of the primitive uh, Mazabrat. All of these were phallic emblems, again from the uh, Jewish Encyclopedia. So even the Encyclopedia Judica tells you that the Temple of Solomon's two phallic pillars were phallic emblems. They were symbolized of the male erection. Now, there was another sexual symbol used in the story of Solomon's Temple, and it has to do with the high priest's clothing. We're told that the high priest of Israel uh, when they went in between the two phallic pillars, they would wear something on their garment called uh, uh, pomegranates. Pomegranates were very, very uh, profoundly sexual symbolism. And here we see on the, on the, uh, <clears throat> on the, the, the skirts of the high priest, you will see pomegranates. This is in the Bible that tells you that the priest of Israel would wear pomegranates. Well, there was no ancient Israel, and there was no King Solomon, there was no Temple of Solomon. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the whole idea of being anointed was nothing more than smoothing uh, or rubbing uh, lubricant on the male phallic before sex. Well, now we get into the pomegranates that were on the high priest's clothing, and pomegranates were the symbolism obviously symbolize the female's ability to create life. And so the palm, and here is it like, in, for instance, here in the Bible, in 1 Kings 7, 18, uh, we're told that he made pomegranates in two rows encircling each network. 1 Kings out of the New American Standard Bible talks about the pomegranates. Uh, the pomegranates were always on top of the two pillars. Why? It's because pomegranates and the phallic erection connected. There was a reason why all of the ancient, and these are all Bible uh, comments and Bible different translations telling you the same thing. Pomegranates always represented the female. She was the, she was the, she was the fruit that was able to produce life. So the blood of the pomegranate and the seeds represented the seeds of life from the female. So inside the, we have there again, as I said, the uh, picture of the uh, male phallic, uh, Jacob and Boaz. We know now that it was a male, uh, the whole symbolism of, symbol, of Solomon's temple was a, was a sexual symbolism. We see that now because once you understand what the ancient reference works of the Bible are telling you, so since this presentation is part two of a two-part series, we really need to see part one entitled Messiah, and I've said that before, in order to understand the connection of the second half of this presentation. In Messiah, the first, uh, the first half, we talked about the signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, even unto this day. That's quoting Jeremiah 32, 20. 
And so we need to go back to the first video, part one, Messiah, and look at the symbolism for Messiah in the Bible as it applies to the whole subject of Solomon's temple. Because the ancient symbol for Messiah in the Bible applies directly to this fictitious Solomon's temple. When we examine the words used in the Old Testament for Messiah and the New Testament Jesus, they are both referred to in the very same symbolic term that connects them to Solomon's temple, as you will see. First, let's see how the church refers to Jesus, Messiah, and then we will see the actual words or terms the Bible uses. As you will see, they are, they are not the same. The church says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Well, this is, this is totally uh, incorrect, just as so much in the church teachings today are incorrect and misunderstood, misinterpreted, and accepted as fact. Let's go back and look at this idea of Jesus being the cornerstone of the church, which is absolutely ludicrous when you do some research into the word. Here we see on churches Jesus Christ the cornerstone. Jesus Christ himself, the cornerstone. This is the cornerstone, representing Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. A lot of churches are even called cornerstone churches. We have churches, cornerstone churches, cornerstone Baptist, cornerstone Presbyterian. We have cornerstone Christian, cornerstone this and cornerstone that. A Christian academies, cornerstone community church. Uh, everywhere you look, you see cornerstone churches, and the churches of Jesus are cornerstone churches. Well, it's a profound misunderstanding of the Bible words and terms. Nobody seems to be doing any homework on this subject to understand that this is a misconception. Jesus is not the cornerstone. So all of these churches talking about cornerstone are totally incorrect. <clears throat> Somebody needs to go and explain to these people that cornerstone is not the term used in the Bible for Jesus. So we got a lot of money and a lot of time and effort being spent on building churches for cornerstone when that is not the word used in the Bible for Jesus or the Messiah. So as I said, we got plenty of cornerstone churches, but there is a glaring problem and a misunderstanding of the words. Of course, that's natural because there's been, a, there's been a lot of misunderstanding about words and terms in religion. Well, again, when you hear people talking about they've been anointed with holy oil or they've been anointed, just understand what that means. When you hear about Solomon's temple, just know it's a male erection. But the Old Testament Messiah and the New Testament Jesus in Scripture are not referred to as cornerstones. But both the Old Testament and the New, the term is chief cornerstone. There's a big difference between a cornerstone and a chief cornerstone. Like in Psalms 118, Old Testament, it says, The stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Acts 4:11 in New Testament. This is the stone which the builder rejected by the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Matthew 21, 42 goes on to talk about the Messiah and the stone which a builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Understand there's a world of difference between a cornerstone and a chief cornerstone. Let's look at the Old Testament first. Here, here in Psalms 118, you'll see in the Bible, the stone which a builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
<clears throat> this is in the Old Testament, and this is from the Lord. So don't say it's, it's Jordan Maxwell saying this. The scripture said this is from the Lord, and it is his doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Again, this is from the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the New King James Version. New American Standard, chief cornerstone. Now Jesus in the New Testament. <clears throat> We've seen that the, this was always in the Old Testament. We were talking about Psalms. <clears throat> now we can talk about Jesus in the New Testament. <clears throat> Jesus in the New Testament is referred to as chief cornerstone, Ephesians. Uh, Amplified Bible, chief cornerstone. Again, chief, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Cornerstone, no, chief cornerstone. So now we see how the churches use the right word but apply it to the wrong stone. This is not a chief cornerstone. This is a cornerstone, not a chief cornerstone. This is a cornerstone, but that's why it's on the corner of a building. It's called a cornerstone. Everybody should know that you do not have many cornerstones. You need only one. Since there is only one cornerstone per building, then <clears throat> why call the Messiah the chief cornerstone when there's only one to start with? This is a cornerstone, but Jesus is referred to as a chief cornerstone. So they got the right, <clears throat> they got the right stone on the corner, but it doesn't represent Jesus because he is the chief cornerstone, and that's different than a cornerstone. The answer is simple. There is a big difference between the cornerstone and a chief cornerstone, I would hope you understand by now. By, by not knowing the difference between the two, Christians around the world have been purposely misled and have paid a terrible price because of it. This is a cornerstone. This is why it sits at the corner of a building. That's why it's called a corner stone. This is a cornerstone, as you will see. It's sitting on the corner. <clears throat> so this is a cornerstone. This is a cornerstone. Cornerstone. Here is the laying of a cornerstone. This is a cornerstone. It's called a rough ashlar in Freemasonry, a rough cut stone, a rough stone. But it's just a square stone that goes set on the corner. <clears throat> That's why it's called a cornerstone. Now, but Messiah and or Jesus, both Old and New Testament, Messiah, New Testament, Jesus are both referred to as a chief cornerstone. Again, we go back to Psalms 118, chief cornerstone. Again, in New Testament, Jesus himself being a chief cornerstone. All right, so we now see the cornerstone is the first stone placed at the corner of a structure, and that's why it's called a cornerstone. But a chief cornerstone is found only in one place, as you will see. There's only one place you're going to find a chief cornerstone. If the cornerstone, and these are from biblical reference works now, if the cornerstone is to act as a reliable emblem of the Messiah, it should certainly occupy a unique site unmatched by any other throughout the entire building. 
Psalms 118.22, in the Torgrams, and the Hebrew Torgrams, and in the Talmud, the conclusion reaches that the stone occupies the summit of the building, where it is placed as the crowning, completing stone of the edifice. So in Psalms 118, we're not talking about a cornerstone. Even the Hebrew Torgrams and the Talmud tell you that it was a stone occupying the summit of a building. <clears throat> Professor Stanley Cook never wrote a truer word when he stated that from earliest times Palestine has been intimately connected with Egypt. If we approach this quarter, evidence will soon accumulate that our assumption of discovering here the possible home of the cornerstone is correct. We shall be led to the conclusion by the application of a very simple but wholly unexpected archaeological architectural principle. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We shall be led to this conclusion by the application of a very simple but wholly unexpected archaeological architectural principle, sorry. <clears throat> it establishes, moreover, the view of the Nile rather than the Euphrates was the original home of the cornerstone. It establishes, moreover, the view that the Nile in Egypt rather than the Euphrates was the original home of the idea of the cornerstone. Now here we have in the coming of Christ in his kingdom, he is the chief cornerstone. He is the chief top stone in whom the building is completed to have preeminence. So he's the top stone or the chief cornerstone. Again, we see chief cornerstone is a purely biblical term. And this is all one word in the Greek. It comes from the two Greek words meaning the highest angle. The highest angle is a word in Greek chief uh, that's translated chief cornerstone highest angle here is another biblical uh, reference work it says the cornerstone talking about Jesus being the chief cornerstone it says what Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone it goes on to say according to the expositors Bible commentary the Greek word for cornerstone means the tip of the angle not the cornerstone but the tip of the angle, this Bible reference work says, cornerstone tip of an angle. Well, the word, the word biblical commentary, <clears throat> another reference work that says, since Jeremiah's, Professor Jeremiah's proposes that the cornerstone is in fact the final stone 
of the building, or as the crowning stone or the top stone of the edifice, the cornerstone, also the definition being the stone at the topmost angle or point of the pyramid. This is a Bible reference work that's saying that the cornerstone is actually the topmost angle, point of the pyramid. In the biblical book, book of Testament of Solomon, it says, Now the temple was being completed, and was a great cornerstone, which I wished as head of the corner. And uh, it went on to say that he went up the ladder carrying the stone, putting it on the summit. Here's a book called Dictionary of Symbols. And in this book on Dictionary of Symbols, on the cornerstone, we see the stone was, which crowns the building. Similarly, in the Greek lexicon, the word for uh, chief cornerstone, its meaning is given as a stone at the topmost angle or point of a pyramid or obelisk. Are you getting the idea that there's a world a difference between a cornerstone of a building and a chief cornerstone, which is the topmost angle or point of a pyramid? Here's the interpreter's Bible reference work and the Bible reference work. Uh, here on page, uh, here under First Peter, we see the cornerstone, of course, is the Messiah. So now when we talk about the cornerstone, which is the Messiah, we should perhaps note that the cornerstone is not the top stone as the head of a gable, but a stone at the extremity of the angle, which controls the design of the edifice and is visible. So it's got to be the top stone that controls the whole angle of the temple. Here in the Bacon, uh, Bacon Dictionary of Theology, <clears throat> you'll see on the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20 and 1 Peter 2.6, Christ is described as the chief cornerstone. This is all one word, as we read in the other reference work, a Greek word, and it compounds the two words, top, extremity, and an angle. So therefore the, the cornerstone is actually a chief cornerstone which means in Greek a top extremity angle. And it is also referred to, Christ is also referred to as the capstone of his church. So now we have the tip of the angle is now capstone. And the New Testament studies out of Cambridge, England, uh, an international journal we read on the, the uh, on page three fifty two Christ the car the cornerstone, and there again we see that the Greek word is primarily conceived as a unifying of the holy temple of the Lord is in no doubt. Professor Jeremiah argues that the stone in question was not connected with the foundation of the building, but with the top. It was the copestone, the capstone. Again, let me go back over that. It says, Professor Jeremiah argues that the stone in question was not connected with the foundation of the building. That's a cornerstone. But with the top, it was a copestone, a highest angle. <clears throat> the next, another, 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 on the page 355 of the same article, it says, the next matter to be considered is the text in which the word, the Greek word, appears. The text from Professor Jeremiah's produces established beyond the doubt that the word in Greek could and did differ from the stone at the top of the building. 
Expositor's Dictionary of the Bible Words, we see Chief Cornerstone. And next to it, we see the coming of the Messiah, the stone that the builders rejected, has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. So when you're talking about the chief cornerstone or Messiah, just remember it is also a term used to capstone, and just remember this is the Lord's idea. This is not Jordan Maxwell. This is the Lord has done this. So it's God's will, not mine. Baker's Dictionary of Theology says on the Christ, the cornerstone, it gives the words that designated the final top stone of the temple. And as Professor Jeremiah, they quote him again, argues that the Greek word is a capstone which completes the building which is placed at the summit. So a summit is the top of a mountain. The summit, Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, on the capstone, it's the uttermost stone in a building project, sometimes used to tie two intersecting walls together. As the top stone of the of a structural wall, the capstone was the crowning point. The crowning point is the capstone. Therefore, when you read in the Old Testament Bible, Psalms 118, that the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone which is this is a different translation. Some translations say chief cornerstone. Some say capstone. Therefore, capstone and chief cornerstone means the same thing. Psalms in the New International Version of the Bible says it has, the builders rejected has become the capstone. Here's the New International Version from UK, the United Kingdom. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Again, New International Version, but this is in the New Testament talking about Jesus said, Have you never read in the scripture that the stones rejected has become the capstone? Not the cornerstone, capstone. This is New Testament again in the New International Version. Here's Matthew 21, New International Version, capstone. A capstone, if you go to the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary, look up cap, you will see it's the summit. The top, the top summit is called the cap. This is a capstone, not a cornerstone. This is a chief cornerstone as a capstone, highest top angle. Capstones are also known, there's another word for capstones. In the ancient Egyptians, they didn't call it capstone. They called it a pyramidion. So capstones are always also in Egypt was known as a pyramidion. Capstone pyramidion. The Englishman's Bible Cyclopedia says on the cornerstone, he is also the headstone of the fifth crowning top corner of the pyramid in which the whole building meets and culminates. Here in the Palestinian Exploration Quarterly. <clears throat> embodying the quarterly statement of the Palestinian Exploration Fund and the Bulletin of the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, published in London, under the title, Was the Cornerstone of Scripture a Pyramidion? Illuminating in the extreme are the many symbols such as light, vine, door, shepherds, and the like, under which Jesus has veiled his being. 
All of these admit of a simple, straightforward interpretation. There is, however, one deeply significant figure of speech which, although apparently equally obvious, is in reality both hidden and highly technical. So we're asking the question, when you talk about the cornerstone, well, are we really talking about a pyramidion? In order that any reader unversed in architectural and architecture may the more readily grasp the nature of our inquiry, it will make it easier if he distinguishes clearly between the two terms which may be freely used, namely, the sight of the stone on one hand and its design on the other. So if you're going to understand the, the chief cornerstone, you've got to first of all figure where is it going, where is it going to be put, and second, what is its design. We have first to determine the position of the cornerstone occupied, whether it is a foundation, cornerstone on the base, or in the summit. And then it goes on the next page to say, if the cornerstone is to act as a reliable emblem for the Messiah, it should certainly occupy a unique site unmatched by any other throughout the entire building. The question of site is finally approached and successfully solved by Professor James Jeremiah. Professor Jeremiah ex examines the terms referring to cornerstone in the following sources. We read this before, where in the Hebrew Torgrams and Talmud, uh, the conclusion is reached that the stone occupies the summit of the building, whether, uh, where it is placed as a crowning, completing stone. It's the top stone, the cornerstone being the most certainly a top stone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The, uh, this is important to remember here, too, in this Bible reference work. It says this is necessary for the Hebrews had no constructual originality. The Hebrews had no constructual originality, meaning the ancient Hebrews, if there was such a people, never had any kind of a constructual originality. There was nothing original in this whole story. Having had to approach the Phoenicians to aid them in erecting Solomon's temple, because the Bible even says the Phoenicians designed the temple of Salom on. So Professor Stanley Cook never wrote a truer word, as we've said before, from the earliest times Palestine has been intricately connected with Egypt. And if we approach this quarter, this idea, if we approach it, evidence will soon accumulate that our assumption of discovering here the possible home of the cornerstone is correct. It came from Egypt. Now let the student conjure up every type of edifice known in the ancient world, be it a palace, temple, mausoleum, theater, fortress, pyramid, ziggurat, whatever. And then alongside the structure arrange, arrange every type of pillar, monument, stone, monolith, obelisk, column, and the like. 
which man has raised for any purpose. He will then find that however dissimilar these erections are, when he compares their summit, there is only one building and but one pillar, the summits of which are virtually identical. We refer to the pyramid on the one hand and the obelisk on the other. They are both crowned with a stone which is a pyramidally shape, which is a pyramidion. A pyramidion, as other Bible reference works we've read, is actually the word being mistranslated cornerstone. No, it is a chief cornerstone. goes on to say the pyramidion, or chief cornerstone, on an obelisk is a one piece with a shaft which separates on a pyramid. So, these features are, however, incidental and do not affect the ruling design, which is, which is pyramidal. So, under, on page 109, under the heading of the cornerstone of Scripture, it is submitted, therefore, that unless the textual evidence can be overthrown, it can be seen that the cornerstone of Scripture described by the term in Greek is none other than a pyramidion. What this is saying is if if you look at the Greek words in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament for chief cornerstone, you're going to see the word means a pyramidion. It establishes moreover that the view of the Nile rather than the Euphrates was the original home of the cornerstone. The close relationship between Egypt and Hebrew has been steadily established by the researchers by the researchers and modern scholars. There is no doubt but that the word in Hebrew is an active voice, but the view that the cornerstone is a foundation stone has misled many. That the, uh, that the view that the cornerstone is a foundation stone at the corner has misled many. And then taking the expression passive. So, the truth is that we are now here given by the prophet an insight into a little-known constructual function, which can only be performed by an extremely limited number of topmost stones. Ignorance of this comparatively unknown role is entirely responsible for the misunderstanding which has arisen. So it's the reason why people are ignorant of these words in Greek and ignorant of the designs, ignorant of the whole concept. That's how we have become responsible for the misunderstanding which has arisen. These are from reference works in the Bible, reference works. We see that the house is built of stone and brick is often at the summit, a small triangular stone known as an apex stone. Now we got a new word. You see, the apex stone was cut before, it's at the summit. And that the apex stone is now connected directly to the word pyramidion. Pyramidion and apex stone. The last sentence says, this function thus agrees precisely with the view also above suggested that the cornerstone is a pyramidion. But now we have a new word called apex stone. <clears throat> so under on page 115 we see that which could fulfill the judicial role of the complete edifice, this one word alone proves the prophet's extreme technical precision. All of these features are interlocked and together form a closely knit argument in support of a pyramidion. 
as a design for the cornerstone, known as a pyramidion, an apex stone. This function thus agrees precisely with the view that the above is a cornerstone is a pyramidion. Here in a book called Christian Words by Nigel Turner, a book you can find in any good Christian bookstore, look under the word cornerstone and you will see the, the heading is Corner Foundation Stone or Peak of the Pyramid. I didn't write this. This is in a book called Christian Words by Nigel Turner. And you will see under the heading of Corner Foundation Stone, the actual word in Greek is Peak of the Pyramid. It goes on to say, but there are four or more corners to a building, and a stone at the corner cannot be uniquely significant. If you got four corners, uh, you have a cornerstone, so what's so special about a cornerstone? You've got four corners, but unless the stone be at the apex of a pyramid where all corners meet and bond together. So unless the stone be the apex of a pyramid where all the stones are coming together, this is an apex. You see God's sun, the light of the world, our risen Savior, the apex represents the chief cornerstone or peak of the pyramid. Under the title, The Siege Perilous Essays in Biblical Anthropology and Kindred Subjects, published out of London, you'll see that the suggestion that the stone had the shape of a pyramidion would seem to be require a pyramid or an obelisk as its architectural complement. So even the architectural idea of a pyramidion means it had to have been on a pyramid. The quarterly statement of the Palestinian Exploration Fund, uh, Ex Exploration Fund in 1946, in an article entitled, as we saw before, was the cornerstone of scripture of Pyramidion. The author, M.E.E. E. Lavas, taking the word Bohin as active, maintained that the prophet had in mind a pyramidal apex stone used to test the accuracy of a pyramid or pyramidion by applying it to the summit of such a building. So we have been seeing over and over and over again and all the Bible reference works from England to America to Israel that the chief cornerstone is a pyramidion apex pyramidal point of a pyramid, not a cornerstone but a chief cornerstone. It goes on to say this messianic testing stone was rejected by the builders, which is Israel, because it revealed the imperfection of their building, but it was hidden by Jehovah in the foundation of Zion and designed to be destined to be brought out of the hiding place and placed on the summit. This was another a comment by a religious writer, but he at least he understands that it would be placed on the summit of the building. <clears throat> so, here's another uh, uh, reference work, chapter 17, the cornerstone of scripture. Pyramidion, what is a pyramidion? Well, first of all, we go back to pyramidion. It is the utmost piece or capstone of the Egyptian pyramid, archaeological 
So, pyramidions, capped by a pyramidion or capped stone. So here you see an old temple, uh, an old Egyptian temple, uh, pyramid temple, and you will see at the very top is a top stone which, which ties in all four sides. It itself is a pyramid, but it's a small pyramid that caps the big pyramid. And so the small pyramid on the top of the big pyramid is called a pyramidion. Pyramidion is a small pyramid on top of the big pyramid. Here is an actual capstone found in Egypt, a little triangle which would sit on top of a much larger pyramid. Here's one in, in the Egyptian uh, in the Cairo Museum. Here is another one, a little small pyramid sitting on top of a larger one. They're all over Egypt, pyramidions. Here they are in Hollywood designing a pyramidion, a chief cornerstone. Again, like we said, the house built of stone and brick that is often at the summit of the small triangular stone known as an apex stone. Again, we see the apex stone as a pyramidion. Pyramidion apex, interpreter's Bible also says, as the interpreter's Bible uh, says that uh, we have the complete explanation of the statement in Isaiah concerning the sign and witness unto the land, to the Lord and the land of Egypt. We talked about this in the earlier book, Messiah, in the earlier video called Messiah. So you need to go back and get the video Messiah because now we're talking about Isaiah 19, 19 where Isaiah the prophet says that God said, I will have a sign and a witness in the land of Egypt, and it will be an altar to the Lord and a pillar and the border thereof. So this explanation, which is in the Bible, Isaiah 19.19, 19, would account for the use of the pyramid symbolism in the allegorical language of the Old and New Testament. In such allegorical references, the mystical body of Christ is likened to the pyramid with Christ himself as the apex stone. So in order to understand this quote, you need to go back and get the uh, book, uh, go back and get the video, I'm sorry, go back and get the video uh, called The Messiah, and you will see what this is talking about, Isaiah 19.19. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Here again we see the apex stone is rejected by the builders of the pyramid. Was it not a messianic symbol? Apex stone was a messianic symbol. And so it's asking the question, and is the apex stone rejected by the builders of the pyramid not a messianic symbol? Yes, apex stone is a messianic symbol, the highest top stone. Expository Times, this is Expository Times published in Edinburgh, volume 84, talks about uh, the cornerstone. And it says, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Again, the Greek word 
Well, the Greek word does not mean any cornerstone, but a stone which crowns the building like a top stone, the last stone to be put in place, in position, a top stone. God made the crucified Jesus both Lord and Messiah, it goes on to say. No more signal instance has ever presented itself of the motif of the elevation of the rejected stone to be the crown of the whole structure. This, they acknowledge, is the Lord's doing. So the elevation of the rejected stone is the crown of the whole structure. Here the cornerstone is envisioned as forming an apex. Described in the same context, the apex stone is now a pinnacle of the temple. We see down in the footnotes uh, as the topmost angle or point of the pyramid, which being cut out before being set in position and being laid, last laid, would not fit the construction were not if it were not true. So the apex stone decides what the whole pyramid is going to look like. On the pyramid, the apex stone is the starting point or the finishing point of all things. Either it's going to start at the top and work its way down, or you're going to start at the bottom and work your way up. Either way, it's going to end up at the top with an apex stone. This is why Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. doesn't matter if you begin or at the end, it's still going to be an apex stone. Joining the apex to the base of the triangular shaped faces of the pyramid symbolizing fire, divine revelation. The pyramid is seen as a symbol expressing the whole of the work of creation. Apex stone. Here is a, here's the uh, encyclopedia or the dictionary talking about the pyramid. Here you will see a pyramid is, of course, <clears throat> the point, and it is referred to as a sloping sides meeting at the apex. And then beneath it is pyramidion in the dictionary. It says a pyramidion is a miniature pyramid as the apex of a pyramid. So we've talked about pyramids, apex, crowning point. That is a chief cornerstone on top of a pyramid. There it is, the apex the chief cornerstone, the symbol for Messiah in the Bible. Here in old reference works of the Bible, talks about the old uh, Christian reference works, the pyramid is a symbol of spiritual universe, the apex, its chief cornerstone, itself is a perfect pyramid representing Christ. Chief cornerstone, apex of a pyramid, pyramidion, Christ. Again, we go back to the apex is actually a pinnacle. Uh, when you talk about pinnacle, this is interesting. Now, here is another word meaning the same thing, pinnacle. What is a pinnacle? Pinnacle is, of course, the small upright structure commonly terminating in a gable or pyramid or cone. It's also synonymous with apex summit. A uh, pinnacle is also a peak or a point. Another dictionary says another resemb anything resembling a pinnacle, a lofty peak or pointed summit. <clears throat> pinnacle. Pinnacle. A pinnacle is the top summit point. Pinnacle. The pinnacle of the uh, temple. 
here's a here's a uh, a table with the pinnacle separated from the pyramid the pinnacle now in the book of of uh, Matthew in the in the New Testament book of Matthew Matthew 4 5 it says then the devil took Jesus up to the holy city and set him upon the pinnacle of the temple this is in the Bible go back to Matthew 4 5 and read where it says then the devil talking about Jesus it said the devil took Jesus up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple here is a, a, a picture of devil taking Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple well, we know that the word pinnacle is in the New American Standard Bible, pinnacle of the temple. The King James Version says pinnacle. Uh, English Standard Version says pinnacle of the temple. King James Version, pinnacle of the temple. New Testament Studies, an international journal published uh, out of uh, Cambridge, England. New Testament Studies talks about, and all the tradesmen and all the spirits who labored on it came together to bring the stone and set it on the pinnacle of the temple. So now we're talking about he is the top stone or the pinnacle of the building. The devil takes Jesus to the holy city and sits him on the pinnacle of the temple. What temple? Solomon's temple in Jerusalem? Did Solomon's temple have a pinnacle? No, Solomon's temple was a sexual symbol. It had to do with sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It had nothing to do with anything holy. So to wrap this up, let's review the basic points quickly. When we hear that Jesus is the cornerstone, that's totally ludicrous and totally inaccurate. A cornerstone is on the corner of a building. Here is a cornerstone that's not Jesus. It would not occupy, Jesus would not occupy such a simple thing as a cornerstone. But the Bible and biblical reference works refer to Messiah and Jesus not as a cornerstone, but as a chief cornerstone, as we said. And again, you only need one cornerstone, so chief cornerstone means something totally different. What? Well, in the scripture, again, we read in the Old Testament, the stone the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and the Lord has done this. Again, we see it in the, in the Old Testament. Then we see it in the New Testament, chief cornerstone. We know that the chief cornerstone is the highest angle. We see that the this is all revealed. We see that Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone, the tip of the angle. Christian word says cornerstone is the peak of the pyramid, the capstone. It's marvelous in our eyes that the Lord has done this. He's the, he has made the Messiah the capstone. Again, the capstone, the top extremity of an angle. I'm saying this thing redundantly to make the point that the capstone is not the word used in the Bible for the Messiah, but chief cornerstone, which is the topmost angle, pyramidion, capstone. Understand? The capstone is the crowning point. And that is the point, that the pinnacle of the temple, that the devil took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. We now know that the pinnacle of the temple is the pyramid. And, now, and so then we're 
we can conclude with this. So we see that the so-called cornerstone of Scripture is a misunderstanding and a misreading of the actual words in Scripture. We now know that the word is not cornerstone. We now see the word is chief cornerstone and is synonymous and means the same as apex, pinnacle, capstone, pyramidion, peak of the pyramid. Do you understand? The Messiah in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New is not a cornerstone. It is a word in Greek which is synonymous with apex. It's synonymous with apex, pinnacle, capstone, pyramidion, and peak of the pyramid. <clears throat> so when all is said and done, the bottom line is this. There are two key points that we need to be recognized and remembered. The correct title for Messiah in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, is not cornerstone, but chief cornerstone. Chief cornerstone means top stone or peak of the pyramid. There is the symbol for the Messiah of the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament is the peak of the pyramid, the pyramidion or capstone or the topmost angle. So when you see this symbol, just remember this is not Lucifer, this is not the devil. This is a symbol for the Jewish Messiah, the one who is to come, the chief cornerstone, the highest point on the angle. And so when you see this symbol and you hear it as some uh, represented as the symbol for the Illuminati, well that might be true but it actually comes directly from the Bible. It's a biblical word. So, let's go back once more to the Bible's Old Testament and look at Job, look at Jeremiah 32.20 and read what he says about God. If you go to Jeremiah 32.20, <clears throat> talking about God, Jeremiah says, You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, to this day. Uh, here is another translation it says great this is from the Bible this is from Jeremiah 32:20. says the great and mighty God whose name is the Lord of hosts you are great in counsel and mighty in works for your eyes are opened on all the ways of the sons of men to give everyone according to his ways according to the fruit of his doing and then Jeremiah says of this great and mighty God, You have set signs and wonders in the land of Egypt to this day. Here again, Jeremiah 32.20, today's international, You have performed signs and wonders of Egypt and continue them to this day. Again, New International Version, You perform miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt and have continued to this very day. So also in the Old Testament book of Isaiah we read that God has a great monument that he put in Egypt as a sign and a witness. And this is what we talked about and you need to go back as I said to get the original video Messiah for the whole story on this. But also in the Old Testament book of Isaiah we read that God has a great monument that he put in Egypt. He put in Egypt as a sign and a witness to the world that he is the true God of all mankind and it, I-T, it is still there to this day. 
So the scripture says when we read in Isaiah 19, 19, Isaiah 19, 19 says, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt, and a monument to the Lord at its border. And it, not they, not two different things, an altar and a monument, no, it, it will be for a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt, Isaiah 19, 19 and 20. Again, Isaiah 19, In that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord. Sounds like two different things, but then in Isaiah 19.20 it says, And it, I-T, one thing, not two. And it shall be for a sign and for a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. <clears throat> Again, this is very important, that's why I'm re-emphasizing it. On that day, Isaiah 19.19 says, there will be an altar to God, the altar to the Lord in the center of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the, of, to the Lord at the border. It will be a sign and a witness, not they. One thing, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. What I'm trying to tell you is that God has put an altar at the middle of the land of Egypt, and it is a sign and a witness that God is in the land of Egypt. That's what the Bible says in Isaiah 19, 19, and Job 32, and in uh, Jeremiah 32, 20. So remember, it is a sign and a witness of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Here's Isaiah 19, 19 saying the same thing. So you will notice that the scripture says the monument is an it, <clears throat> and it will be for a witness unto the Lord. So we've established that we're talking about one thing, it. Here is the temple of Saul Om On. And that day shall there be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, and a pillar at the border thereof to the Lord, and it. I.T. shall be a sign and a witness unto the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. This is referred to as the temple or the temple of the great king, Saul Om On, the Son, our risen Savior. The Son is giving its energy or life so that we might live. So the pyramid is referred to as the temple or the pyramid of the sun and this was put here the scripture says in Isaiah by God God put this structure here and the chief cornerstone the second point we need to recognize and remember is that the great pyramid of Egypt was put there by God <clears throat> and that the great pyramid of Giza is and always has been the temple of Saul Om on so it's the temple of the sun. It is a temple put in Egypt by God, and his son, or the Redeemer, or Jesus, the Messiah, is the chief cornerstone at the tip of the, of the triangle. Saul, Om, On. 
So when you see that the Temple Institute in Jerusalem is spending $27 million on the preparation for the rebuilding of the great Solomon's Temple, just remember there was no Solomon, there was no Solomon's Temple, there was no ancient Israel, there was no Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. None of it ever existed in history, and that's what the Jewish reference works will tell you if you go to the library and spend about five years researching the subject. You will see that now they're having the cornerstone for the third temple. They're bringing into Israel the new cornerstones for the great temple. So what you need to remember is there was no Temple of Solomon, there was no Solomon, <clears throat> which means that the so-called Solomon's Temple in the State of Israel today is a deceptive political ploy by the same old religious political banking elites that are dominating our world today. You better wake up. It's Saul Om On, the Temple of the Sun, or the Pyramid of the Sun. This is Saul On's temple, and the Messiah, or Jesus, is the chief triangle, the chief cornerstone, the pyramidion, the capstone, the pinnacle of God's temple. You are looking at the temple of Saul On, the pyramid of the sun, in three languages. All of the ancient world knew this. All of the ancient historians knew this was the Temple of Saul Om An. It's only our modern day <clears throat> deceptive religions and banking and governmental institutions that have misled the people into looking at Israel, which is nothing more than Isis Ra El, the name of the sun. There is no chief cornerstone in Israel. This is the Temple of Saul Om An, and Jesus the Messiah is the chief cornerstone or the Pyramidion at the very top. Manly P. Hall expressed it so much better than me. He said, "All the all-seeing eye, hold on, the all-seeing eye represents the eternal watchfulness of the infinite. It is the ancient Egyptian eye of Horus, the Redeemer. The apex, a top platform 30-foot square apex, in symbol of the unfinished work of the redemption of humanity. Imperfect man incomplete without the apex of his divine nature. <clears throat> the all-seeing eye on the dollar bill is not situated on the top of the pyramid but floats above it for man has not affected his spiritual union with his material self the pyramid structure represents the building of society to a gradual perfection of human endeavor crowned by the divine presence in the universe the divine approbation so what the pyramid represents is the entire human experiment on the earth by God that supposedly we are all climbing the pyramid of wisdom and knowledge and understanding as we go through life hoping one day as the Apostle Paul says the hope of glory is the Christ in you 
The whole idea of the Christ is the apex of the divine nature which we're supposed to be climbing each day to get more and more wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and study as we keep climbing toward our ultimate destiny of human and spiritual perfection in our nature instead of this incredible silly nonsense that we call the Temple of Solomon in Israel. This is the symbol for Messiah, the chief cornerstone the builders rejected. And so the idea of rebuilding Solomon's temple in Israel today is an international Illuminati banker's joke, and a bad one at that. So that all Christian Jews and Muslims, I leave you with this quote from the Bible. Jesus said, have you never read in the scripture that the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing. This is not Jordan Maxwell saying that this is God's will. So take it or leave it, whether you like it or not. This is the symbol for the Messiah, the chief cornerstone, the capstone, the pinnacle of the temple. This is the symbol for Jesus and God's kingdom. So, I guess the Masons, the Masonic Order, had it right. <clears throat> Christianity had it wrong. The Masons had it right. They knew that Jesus, or the Messiah, represents the light of the world. And you will see the light emanating from around the eye. It's because all Masons throughout the world know that the eye represents the Messiah, the Logos, Jesus, the light of the world, and the whole symbol of the dollar bill shows the pyramid as, as a symbol for mankind, the whole of mankind, and which we are all supposed to be building to a spiritual apex, to the pinnacle of the temple, where we will finally reach spiritual perfection in our understanding and knowledge. Well, I got to tell you, Unless and until we get through with all of this religious menagerie and all this silly, nonsensical, disgraceful stuff we call religion, with their, all of this disgraceful stuff we're seeing in Israel and the Holy Land and jumping around on stages and making millions of dollars off of poor people and then calling this symbol the symbol of the devil and Lucifer, you better go back and do your homework. This is a symbol that God put here. Thank you.